Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome back Mark Waitesha, CEO of the Children's Hospital Association. Mark and I left off last time discussing the similarities and the differences between pediatric and adult medicine. Mark, thanks for coming back. Great to be back with you, Tom. You know, Mark, when we were talking last time, uh, we were focusing on some of the similarities and differences the way things are today. I thought what we might do this time around is to uh, talk a little bit about our latest research project, which ponders what I refer to as 40 years of market failure, the healthcare market not coming up with a sustainable, affordable price or spend for the things that we're providing. In my mind, the market works for private goods like automobiles, where we tolerate, frankly, um, a lack of access for folks with an inability to pay. But for what economists refer to as common goods, things like clean water, where we wouldn't tolerate folks not having access to it if they were unable to afford it, we often use a regulated utility model, most often provided in the private sector, but with prices regulated to ensure access and affordability. What would you say if if I suggested that we might move to a rate-regulated financing model for healthcare? Well, you've raised the age-old question of affordability. And for sure, uh, when you look at an industry like automobiles, there is a certain capability that an automobile has that, for the most part, hasn't changed in 100 years get inside, you turn the key, it takes you places. And we can take a look at whether you want more luxury items or not and pay for those, but we can make that a consumer good. The healthcare challenge to me, Tom, is driven by a couple of things. One really is the technology and what's available versus even 50 years ago. We have made it possible for people to live longer lives with less invasive procedures with less pain, with more functionality, more options. And this has all come along by a massive investment in research and development, training, skills, all the things that go on in our academic medical centers, children and adults alike. And of course, all of that is not free. There needs to be a return uh, to make that a viable investment. So I think the product that we have on the shelf called healthcare today is not at all resembling the product that was on the shelf called healthcare 50 years ago. Uh, We have evolved it considerably, whereas many of our consumer products are, are very similar. So what it's done is it's made it possible for people to live apart or all of their life in a way that was not possible earlier, and for some people, not possible at all. I mean, in many cancers, we have turned these from a mortal outcome into a chronic disease for people that, frankly, wouldn't have survived at all. Premature, let's say, at two or three pounds weight when you and I were born, Tom, all those babies would have died. And now that's a routine save in a NICU. So we have uh, really created a capacity to generate what, you know, if someone traveled in a time capsule from 1950 to today, 
they'd be astonished at the capacity we have to save and extend life. That has all been part of this health and healthcare social evolution. And the cost for that has been commercialized into the people paying for the care, which as you point out, is not individuals. And if individuals had to pay for it, I would contend we would not have the technological capacity we have today. We needed that to be a social investment to drive this kind of outcome. So in my sense, what we have is an extraordinarily expensive long-term investment in creating lifestyles, lifetimes, life at all, for which we're grappling with the cost at the social level and increasingly as the social level can't carry those costs at the individual level. And these costs are being pushed down or shared either from your employer in terms of co-pays and deductibles or the employee's fair share or at the government-sponsored programs, Medicare, similar dynamic. And when you get into any fair sharing of these things, you rapidly run into non-affordability, particularly for um, older patients who are on fixed incomes and who are really getting a sense of what uh, some of these costs are. And I think fundamentally it uh, creates a affordability challenge. The only thing I'd add, Tom, to this, an enormous piece of the U.S. workforce is now totally hooked into this whole spending model. You look at the percentage of Americans working in healthcare, in healthcare vendors, healthcare administration, healthcare wraparound. Uh, it is so large that these larger incomes and these larger cash flows have become part and parcel of the U.S. economy. Very similar to the military. You might remember how hard it was for the military to close bases anywhere, still is. And that's because those anywheres are all part of the ecosystem of the dollar flow. And healthcare has started to look like that almost everywhere. And I think we're kind of addicted to it a little bit from a commercial standpoint, in addition to you know everybody wanting to live an extra 20 years of pain-free, totally mobile, joyous existence, which has to come at some cost. Your answers are, are intriguing to me. And, and in fact, as I listen, I'm hearing you come at this from the perspective of aggregate spend. The unanswered question, can we afford to spend everything that we're spending on healthcare? Well, you make an outstanding case for life being better, longer and better, by virtue of the things that we have invented and the uh, investments that we've made as a society. If I were to ratchet that down to the microeconomic level or to the intra-market level and just marvel at the fact that uh, irrespective of whether a CT scan existed 50 years ago, it exists today, and a CT scan in one city done by five different people is largely similar. Yet the price that gets paid, depending on who pays it and who provides it, can be a four- or five-fold variation. What I'm suspicious of is the fact that these intra-market price differences and the implicit subsidy of private to public, where the, the private insurers pay 
rates that are much higher than they would otherwise be paying if the government weren't unilaterally setting its prices relatively low. That all of that creates a set of financial incentives, if not pressures, on providers to do things that in a perfectly designed situation, they wouldn't do. I don't think either of us would design the system that we have today if we were coming at it from scratch. If I think about it too, Mark, one of the things that we're all troubled by these days, and probably more troubled today than we were even a year ago, is health disparities. Um, I would suggest that markets don't solve disparities. Markets create disparities, even by their nature. We, you know, we all go to business school and, and learn about market segmentation. If I ask the question a little differently, if we found ourselves in a situation where everybody paid in the aggregate the same amount of money as, as we're spending today, so not to take any money away from healthcare, but simply to rebalance the pricing so that all of the payers paid each of the providers the same amount of money. They wouldn't pay a high acuity provider the same as a low acuity provider. They'd pay more to a high acuity provider. But all of the payers, whether it was Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or, or the government, would pay the same price. If we could get to the point where providers were payer agnostic, how do you think things like where they build, what they build, and the kind of the chasing of carriage trade business in the suburbs as opposed to taking care of urban populations might change? Wow, that's a huge, great question. I can try to unpack it a little bit. It probably can be unpacked along several dimensions. So if I ramble a little bit on this, just, just reel me in. You know, the core challenge or a core challenge of healthcare is that we created it in our culture of capitalism. And no matter how you try to cut it, and it's not all about for-profit hospitals versus not-for-profit hospitals. As I would say, all of them operate very similar. Their stakeholders or shareholders are different, but their business models are very similar, which is the need to be inventive, the need to create things, and we do have a lot of innovation. And those are the children of capitalism. It's a beautiful system in a lot of ways, but for health and healthcare, it can be quite destructive on the underside of it because capitalism, by definition, is a competitive system. It's a system that stratifies the so-called winners from losers. It's a free market with the good ideas emerging as more popular and leaving behind the lesser. And once we apply this to populations, we get inequity, we get disparities, we get all the things that we don't like, uh, the good hospitals and the not good hospitals, the great doctors and the less great doctors. And therein lies a real problem, because if people are viewing something as a social good, they expect a social good. So if the post office which was probably one of our original social goods in this country, which is didn't matter where I lived or how much money I made. If I was willing to ante up a stamp, I can expect my letter to be delivered the same as Andrew Carnegie's letter, who's you know well-heeled guy down the street. In health, this isn't the way it works. So what you're raising in one regard is, hey, can we level the field a bit if we created a pricing model that didn't incent 
all of the capitalistic behavior we have. For example, moving my hospital out of downtown wherever, which is full of uh, Medicaid and perhaps uh, non-insured patients, and going out to the suburbs where I got all the commercial folks living. And we have a lot of that going on, uh, as you know, everywhere. I think there are challenges to the more rate-regulated or payment-regulated models, um, one of which people argue about, and I'm not convinced of it, but I think it's a worthy point, which is do you take some of the innovation and capitalistic risk-taking out of the equation? If you cap off the rates, you limit the upside, and do you lose some innovation? Uh, there's people probably smarter than me who can answer that, who think about innovation more in terms of its remunerative ability to be financed. But I think it's fair that anytime you start rate regulating anything from power to the post office stamps to municipalities, there tends to be a, an emergence of less creative, more bureaucratic thinking. And part of it is there's not an upside. You're kind of limiting the upside, if you know what I mean. And once you limit the upside, there's a certain amount of entrepreneurship that perhaps leaves the space. Now, there may be other ways to fund creativity in, in medicine and to fund uh, the evolution of new groundbreaking uh, work that we'd like to have. But I think that's one aspect of it, Tom. The one I worry about more is the one we see in our children's hospitals. So if you and I were financed uh, the same to make our visit to our cardiologist, one of the questions, regardless of who insures us and so forth, I think one of the dimensions that the provider community would shift to is the cost of dealing with somebody. In other words, if I get paid the same to see Mark Watisha or to see Tom Robertson, then I'm not going to any longer worry about which provider sees them or where I see them. I'm going to worry about how much it costs me to take care of this intervention with them. And I do believe that when you look at children's hospitals, particularly the large ones in downtown areas, they tend to be the places where all of the people who either can't get care somewhere else because they are too expensive, too difficult, too costly to deal with, uh, wind up coming. So we have a lot of behavioral health kids showing up at the emergency departments of our hospitals these days, unfortunately. These are kids coming from often difficult families. The families are involved in the care because the kids are minors. There's more complication involved in trying to also if you will, train and raise the awareness of the family's role in their child's mental health problem. You often are dealing with school systems for these same kids that are not as well resourced. You're dealing with neighborhoods that do not have role models in them, or if they do, they're negative role models. So the cost of a behavioral health kid from North Philadelphia who does not have parents in the house most of their time, who does not have a good school system. They're an expensive kid and maybe a lot more expensive to deal with than someone else. I think, Tom, you raised the point, well, yeah, I'm going to acuity adjust those. But I would say, and you're a former insurance guy, so I will defer to you on expertise, our models for adjusting the social and relational acuity, if I could use that word, versus their medical acuity 
are really almost non-existent in some regards. I mentioned Dr. Bethel's research on the ACEs because we can measure ACE loads. And ACEs are a form of social acuity. And that's really what I'm getting to here. That social and relational acuity may be far more important for children and frankly for some of us as adults than our medical acuity. A model where everyone's paid the same for a procedure that can't deal with that social and relational acuity um, adjustment, I think could lend itself to some of the most challenged individuals who are, would then also be right among the most costly, not getting access to care. And part of it isn't because their revenue isn't worthy, it's their costs are too high, and we don't have a way to adjudicate that. So it's really something that we could direct more conversation into, but our medical acuity adjustment is debatable on good days, as you well know. I think plenty of academic debate. The social adjustments, relational adjustments, emotional adjustments, um, these are all of the nuanced edges of the social determinants. My sense is that those um, are really pretty infantile and they drive costs of care. And I think in a rate regulated world, the providers go to where the costs are lowest in their portfolio. And you have some of the same issues we have today on disparities, just created in a little different way, if that makes sense. I think it's a fascinating perspective. And, and in fact, it gives me a, an opportunity to share with you kind of a crazy idea that uh, rattles around in my head. I certainly won't see it happen in the time that you and I have left working. I, I doubt whether or not I'll even live to see it happen, but I maybe would like to think that my kids might. Here's the crazy idea, because I think you're spot on. I think you're absolutely right. If we're not careful and we um, squeeze the price of any individual service, what we risk, another unintended consequence, as you point out, is that I start to be very careful about who I elect to take care of. What I would love to see happen is not capitation. I'm not a fan of splintering risk groups. You mentioned that I have a background in insurance years and years ago. And I think small numbers of people, thousands of people, um, have claims volatility that makes them too risky for undercapitalized healthcare providers to take full risk for. But what I would love to see happen is I'd love to see the emergence of regional ecosystems. I don't mean cities. I actually mean parts of the country that might include multiple cities. And an ecosystem, in my mind, is a place that is clinically self-sufficient. It has all of the resources somewhere in it that almost anyone would need, with maybe even rare exceptions. But think about a, an ecosystem that had maybe multiple cities, could be uh, two or three traditional city markets, to be relatively self-sufficient. And what I would love to see is for that regional ecosystem to have a global spending budget. You know, billions of dollars uh, available, but not attached to a patient. The patient doesn't bring with them the money as they do in capitation because it has its own host of unintended consequences and adverse selection and purposeful cherry picking. 
But if the ecosystem had billions of dollars at its disposal to take care of the needs of the people that were in the ecosystem, I'd like to think that we would see innovation in in terms of avoiding undercompensated care uh, and taking care of some of those things like behavioral health or mental health problems. Those folks today uh, come to us more often than than they might need to if we did a better job of making their lives less tragic. So I wonder whether or not a continued evolution from rate regulation toward this idea of global spending budgets, not unlike Maryland, but far beyond just the hospital side of things, uh, could get us to a point where we turned innovation on its head so that we weren't innovating for the sake of revenue enhancement, but we were innovating for the benefit of the people that we were supposed to be taking care of. What do you think? Well, I love your idea. And I've got a comment on it. But before I leave the notion of rates, there is a part of rate regulation or rates that I I do think is highly worthy. And that is to start to think about what are the reasonable caps, if you will, or the reasonable upper ranges that people that get into medicine, for example, some of the ologists make a million dollars a year, and some make two or three million dollars a year. We have administrators who make millions of dollars a year. We have lawyers and insurance people that make millions of dollars a year. Um, and I think one of the questions is, is there a way to take some of the highest end and round or smooth them down? For example, I think if you have a surgeon, a surgical field or a specialization that makes, I'll just make it up, $1.5 million a year. I think if that group only could make a million, I'm not sure you'd drive a lot of talent out of the pool, if you know what I mean. And I think the same thing is true across the board. I mean, I'm here in Washington. I'm in the cadre now. I'm not a lobbyist personally, but I have lobbyists working for me. And I know how much all the people in Washington make. If everybody made 10 or 20% less, would they still be here doing their jobs? Yes. And would we have a less capable person doing those jobs? No. I think if we try to say, hey, I want to turn $100,000 people into $20,000 people, well, that's going to impact your labor. But I don't think uh, at the 10 or 20% level, it's going to drive or change a real difference in talent or work ethic or motivation. So there's something in it that says that, you know, if you looked at rates, um, could you have uh, some ways to make them more sustainable at the highest level? Um, and I think the answer to that is yes. The issue that you're raising of a global budget, I believe, is the best uh, near-term solution to taking on the social dynamic we've been discussing, which is when you take a look at this, ultimately, it's a community ethic that needs to get translated into this. The models we have of publicly traded managed care organizations adjudicating budgets from publicly traded employers or private sector governors of states running Medicaid programs and then trying to work this down into a population that is in disparate pods of insurance pools, ranging from older people in Medicare to poorer people in Medicaid to working commercial people in some plans, and then people who served in the military and veterans plans. We don't have any social conscience around 
what actually is healthcare? It's just balkanized and it's not understandable by a society. So I like to think, Tom, of taking your example, and it's probably a bad example given the condominium disaster that just occurred in Florida because condominium governance has received a lot of negative press. But how do you create a community health condominium governance? Take your global budget and have people, regular people, not necessarily medical experts or guys that spent all their time in this field like you and me, but people who are just fundamentally the real consumers and say, what is the social contract we're going to have in our healthcare condo? We have $80 billion to spend. We've got, make it up, 8 million people we need to take care of. Here's where we're spending our money. And what really is our understanding with our 8 million people? our condominium of people. What do you get for being in our healthcare building? What is it that we should be doing with our dollars? And where are the areas, whether it's end of life, as you've often raised, beginning of life, amount of uh, luxury in life, individual discretion to call up a CAT scan every year, someone else is paying for it. But what really is that social contract that we want for our condominium? And, you know, within the legal limits of, uh, of a number of laws and the budget we have, what really is that? You know, Tom, I think unless we get more empowerment by the population in this topic, it's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to deal with the entitlement mind of many taxpayers that they paid into programs their whole life and they should be able to take out of them what they need. Uh, there's no accountability, really for the communal level. It's just an individual decision or a family decision. And, you know, there is always the famous American, I need to get mine out of this. So we have that going on. I'd love to see some broader consumer engagement on it, if that were possible. One of my favorite community projects are the Green Bay Packers, the NFL football team, which is fundamentally owned in small pieces by the people, the community of Green Bay. And you have awareness of what's going on with their organization and an awareness of what the community needs to do to make it work for them to stay there. It's there because the community understands how to use that resource and how to respect it in a way that doesn't let it basically flee and go somewhere else. And I think with healthcare, it's got to be similar. We need to sort a broad-based way for people to own the system. So I think your idea of regional systems, and I don't even think it needs to extend hugely. Like in a city like Chicago, your hometown, you could have three or four choices of these. And I think there can be things you leave the system for. I mean, every system doesn't have to have everything in it. But the nuts and bolts of what is my deal, if you want to think of it that way, as a member of my healthcare condo or community, what do I get for that, for what I'm paying in? And what should I not have an expectation of getting without either paying more or a special process for me to get a, a waiver uh, so that actually I can operate as a responsible party as opposed to this isn't really due to me. This is Tom Robertson's condo. He's got all the money in control and you're a landlord and I need my pipes fixed and I don't care about your problems. I'm paying you monthly rent, but I'm not an owner. I don't have a stake in it. And I think people don't have a stake in healthcare. 
They just view it as a separate service. And their, their real interest in it is making sure they get access to it at a reasonable price. But this is a lifestyle issue, as we've talked about. It's not like me getting a car that I can transport myself from part A to part B. It's me getting access to a journey of services for my lifetime that I want to have when I can have them. I want them regardless of how much money has gone into it because it's not my problem. I put my dollars in and I got the impression that the country had created an offering for me. And now I want the offering. And that dynamic will always make it hard for us to treat healthcare as an affordable service in the way we would like it. Now, people are just not connected in a, in a way to the actual um, finances and the actual service. And maybe, Tom, it's impractical to do that. Um, it is a technical area, and it may be that it's just something we can't make that happen for. But I do think empowerment is a big part of connecting people whose lifestyle actually drives the cost curve to a large degree. And unless their lifestyle becomes part of the communal spirit, we're going to have a hard time dealing with the escalation. You've given me a great idea for a 2022 uh, research study. And I have to tell you, I think practicality, it gets in the way of, of good ideas. And so I wouldn't limit ourselves to practical answers quite yet. I think if we can come up with some good ideas, we'll figure out a way to to make them work. And we won't be right the first three times that we try to implement it anyway. You know, Mark, let's, let's close with a two-part question. What's one thing that America could change that would make pediatric medicine better? And the flip side of that is, uh, if there was one thing that the rest of us could learn from those of you in, uh, who are our pediatric colleagues, what would it be? So what could America do differently or what could we change that would make pediatric medicine better? And what should the rest of us take away from this conversation as uh, a lesson from the pediatric world? Sure. These are great questions. You know, one of the things that is a premium in pediatrics is to intervene, invest early in life, and it changes so much in the downstream. Um, I think that's actually a lesson for everybody. Uh, we need to spend more time investing in our health and well-being in our emotional satisfaction with what we do. We often will need help as individual people with that, and that needs to not be a shameful failure of your character. You know, we have this great ethic in the United States of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and all of this pioneer culture that we each need to make all this happen for ourselves. It's our job. And in fact, if you can't do that, that's a recipe for failure. Well, you know, we still may have a few people trekking over the Rocky Mountains and eating the weakest members of their trekking party stuck in a <laughs> blizzard. But I think those days are kind of past. You know, we now live in a fairly contemporary Western society with hundreds of millions of people, plenty of infrastructure, and we have more self-reliance and need to have some more self-reliance on each other. So I think starting early, um, getting the shame out of getting help and fundamentally focusing a little bit on the fact that everything you do today impacts your health tomorrow, in three months, in 30 years. Everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. 
So this is something we can learn. And it, it should be a learning for a 70-year-old, the same as a seven-year-old. Because if you're 70 and you're planning to be around 15, 20 more years, there's things you can be doing right then and the moment in real time. They're going to make your life better. So it's not all just about being seven and, oh, I lost my opportunity and I turned into Mark and Tom. You know, I've got all these chronic problems and there's no way that I'm going to get out of the, the uh, corner. And we know that's not true. You know, the human body is very plastic, got a lot of neuroregenerative capacity, just an enormous capacity to heal and be better people. So the first uh, part of your question is we to invest earlier. And that earlier can be today if you're an older person. For a kid, of course, it's in their first years, but once they turn 18, it doesn't mean you're finished product and you roll off the line. I think for all human beings, this investment early and thoughtfully and carefully is uh, part of the roadmap to having a, a more thriving life. And we learn that from kids because we have to invest early in them because they're a developing, uh, rapid cycle kind of work in process. But for those of us older, people who've been around a long time, you know, we're still regenerating and turning over uh, body cells and systems. And we're every bit as dynamic as a kid in many, many dimensions. And we're learning through the epigenetics of human development that these are all works in process. So I think getting in there early, often, thoughtfully is important. The second part of your question about, you know, what could we learn from children? I made a comment earlier that while well, you and I can show up at a hospital, a kid can't. They're not a legal adult. They don't have agency. So someone's got to come with them and sign the consent forms, make sure they get there. I just haven't seen any two-year-olds arriving in Ubers <laughs> at the front door. Still may happen at some point in time. But uh, we have a situation where, you know, you've got a wraparound, right? I think one thing we could really learn is that in kids' hospitals, we need to treat the wraparound. Unless you can care for and recognize the health status of the families and the communities, you're going to fail probably treating the kid. And if we looked at adults, Tom, I'd argue they're no, we're no different. So treating the whole person, treating the whole family, and you can be 70 years old and as independent, as cantankerous as you want, uh, but if you wind up in the hospital and you've got kids or grandkids or anybody around you, they're going to be part of your process and you probably want them there. And we need a whole community. So thinking whole and not trying to just be ologists working on one square inch of someone's spine with a, you know, 1000 X microscope guiding you. By the way, we do need those people. It's just that their context needs to be not isolated, not pulled out, not impersonalized. And uh, I think oftentimes in medicine, adult medicine particularly, we're almost going the other direction. You know, we have neurosurgeons who don't want to see you except in the OR. We'll attach you to hospitalists who don't know you from there. And we have no home care or aftercare follow-up that's very good except to get over our 30-day readmission hurdle with the government. <laughs> so we don't have a whole person, whole family context. And we have more of that in kids because we have to. We legally have to just to even get you into the system. And on the follow-up, kids don't go and get their own meds. 
They need someone else to show up at CVS and buy those. So the whole compliance, the whole long-term process falls in a more whole way. And that whole way to me is the way we consider social determinants. It's the way we consider the longer, bigger term acuity adjustment of a whole sector or population sector. And it's how we ultimately need to think about healthcare. Unless we can think about it as a whole person, whole community, we're, we're always going to devolve back into uh, super high, specialized, isolated procedures, somewhat unconnected with each other, all charged at different prices, as you point out, with different levels of access. And we can't get to what we would need to, which I think is to have an accessible, affordable system. We need more wholeness in it. We need to, to be able to see it uh, for what it is and to find a way to work with the magic and the miracles that are in it to make it work for people and to make it sustainable for everybody. That's something I think we got a little bit of a forced head start in with kids that would benefit everybody in the country and certainly something that for our senior populations in particular just feels really important. It's a brilliant insight. I couldn't be happier to have been uh, lucky enough to ask that question. You know, at the end of our first episode, I compared you to Paul Newman. Uh, but as I think about it, it might be that you have more in common with Jerry Seinfeld's postman neighbor, Newman. Uh, I understand that you were an accomplished Frisbee player in college. I have to ask, were all the bars closed? You know, Tom, where I was at college, we didn't have too many bars around. This was in a very rural area. <laughs> and if we did, we probably couldn't afford to go in them. We just like always seemed to be broke. So if we could find a way to throw a Frisbee, I think that was kind of our entertainment value. We disavowed ourselves that it would get us any girlfriends or dates, which it never <laughs> did. Uh, but it actually was kind of entertaining. It was inexpensive and it got us outside. So I wound up uh, doing those things. I would say the last I checked on Seinfeld's Newman, I'm not sure he's getting outside or doing any of those things. So I'm left with the impression that we ought to mail the gentleman that plays that role of Frisbee and offer him a couple of, uh, of lessons. It was one of those uh, things that you really love to do, but it didn't get you anything beyond the throwing. Well, I'll tell you what it did do. It, it, it turned you into uh, just one of the most insightful uh, healthcare executives in the country. And as I think back, we, we started this conversation reminiscing about uh, a 20-year-old uh, encounter that we had in Milwaukee, after which I came to the conclusion that you were the best healthcare storyteller that I'd heard, and I still think so today. As someone who stands in front of audiences, myself ducking tomatoes, you've been the gold standard for public speaking in our industry and I'm really, really glad that our listeners got a chance to know you better. So thanks for making the time to be with us. Oh, Tom, you're very kind to say this. And you've been a big inspiration for me in my career. I think you've always been very purposeful about how to frame up the dialogue. And that's been a huge, huge help. And so I'd encourage you to continue to do that. I think the question of affordability is the question of our time. And the questions you're raising here are the things that every single academic medical center whoever they're taking care of has to deal with. So thank you for including me. It's a great privilege and um, look forward to keeping up and sorting out where we can be helpful going forward. I'll be pestering you to give us a hand with next year's study. I've been taking notes 
during our conversation. I've got some ideas, so I won't let you off the hook. <laughs> that sounds fair enough. I'll uh, be in touch with you on, on some things I need you for as well. So great. Uh, more to come. Great. Well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for being with us. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations to be thought provoking. And we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>